Well, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You'll find that on page 1131 in your pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll be looking at the opening nine verses of chapter 1 this morning. Well, before we read, let's ask the Lord's help in prayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, the unfolding of your word gives light and wisdom. And so as we open your word now to read it and to hear it expounded, we ask for the blessing of your spirit. Would you enlighten the eyes of our hearts? Give us wisdom by your word. Build us up in our, in our faith and help us to respond to you with joy and with gladness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Congregation, which of these would you say is better? To successfully fix something that's broken, or to avoid breaking it in the first place. You've broken your toe, or your smartphone has malfunctioned, your lawnmower's broken down. You have the resources to fix the problem. But wouldn't you much prefer that there wasn't a problem in the first place to fix? Now, 1 Corinthians is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church in Corinth, in which the the apostle is seeking to fix a host of problems that have arisen in the church. This was a broken church, full of many problems, full of many undealt with sins. It was a gifted church. They had been gifted with spiritual gifts, the gift of speaking in other tongues, prophecy from God, Miraculous gifts from the Spirit. But it was also a broken church because some of its members were self-satisfied and proud about these gifts. They were using these gifts to abuse other members, to compare themselves with others, and to make weaker members stumble. And it can be easy for us to hear about this letter's background and say, well, we're not facing these same problems in our church. 
So what's the use of this letter for us? Why read 1 Corinthians now, today? But I would suggest to you that we have much to gain from this letter to 1 Corinthians because it can help us to avoid these problems, to guard against them rather than having to fix them when they arise. If we lose sight of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it means for the life of the church, we too may fall into the sins and errors of the Corinthians. So congregation, let us give our attention to what the Lord says to us in this letter, especially about life together in the church. And as we explore these opening verses, verses 1 to 9, we're going to see that they answer one big overarching question that's going to come up throughout this letter. What can keep us faithful to the end? What can keep us faithful? What can keep us from stumbling and from falling away from the Lord? And the answer is this. The faithful God who called you in the beginning is the same God who will keep you to the very end. Let's consider this morning God's sanctifying calling, God's gracious enriching, and lastly, God's faithful keeping. First, God's sanctifying calling. The letter begins, as did all letters back then, by specifying who is writing and who he is writing to. And it tells us that Paul, who has been called by God, is writing to the Corinthians, who are described as those who have also been called by God to be saints, to be holy ones. And so we see from the very beginning this mirror image where Paul, one who is called, writes to those who have been called. There's an emphasis on God's calling of them. Who is it that sets up leaders in the church like apostles? Who is it that calls the church into existence? It's God. Paul addresses the church of God in Corinth. It's God's church. And isn't that a comfort to us? That God made the church out of his wisdom and by his grace. This isn't a man-made idea. It's not just a fad, a human institution. God made the church. He sustains the church. He cares for the church because it is his church, wherever it is found. Now, what then is the church? You know, we speak about the church usually as the building or the institution that we go to or belong to, but Properly speaking, the church is the people. It's the people whom God has called to himself. One author put it this way, people don't enter a church, rather the church enters a building. That's to say, the church is not confined to these four walls. It's the people, it's you the gathering of God's sanctified people. That's what it says in verse 2. It 
It's made up of people, those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified. We often use that word, sanctification, in a theological sense, and that's a good way to use it. We, we mean by it becoming more and more holy, more and more Christ-like. But in Paul's usage of the word here, in this verse, sanctified does not mean that process, that theological sense. Rather, Paul means a definite, once-for-all act of cleansing or separating, making holy once for all. It's not talking about the process of becoming holy, but the position of being holy. Because by faith, you have been clothed with the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus Christ. So let's keep in mind, this is talking about that position of righteousness with which uh, we have been placed in Christ. By the sanctifying call, God calls sinners to salvation. He cleanses them in Christ and makes them saints, holy ones. But pause for a second. What kind of church is Paul writing to? This is a church in Corinth with divisions, with boasting among its members, members literally suing each other in the courts, problems surrounding the Lord's Supper, they're getting drunk on the wine, they're not waiting for the weaker members, there's sexual immorality, incest even, there's doubting about the resurrection of Christ. So hold on a minute, Paul. You mean to say that these people are saints. These people are God's sanctified people. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. And if outsiders knew our hidden thoughts, our secret sins, our shortcomings in this congregation, would they not ask the same question? These people are saints? And God would say, Yes, they are. The church of God has never been perfect. It's never been sinless on this earth. And it shouldn't claim to be. The church is not a community of people who are more righteous than the outside world. We're here because we did something better than the rest. It's a community of people who know and confess that they're sinners to the core. And we flee to Jesus Christ for salvation, for cleansing, for sanctifying. Despite all of their shortcomings, the Corinthians were still saints. And so are we, if we are in Christ. Congregation, despite your shortcomings your weaknesses, your dominant identity is not sinners, it's saints in Jesus Christ. You are a holy one, not because of what you've done, because of your self-effort and your good works, but you are holy ones because by faith you've been joined to the holy one, Jesus Christ. You have fellowship with him, the Son of God.
But how were you enabled to have faith in the Son of God? How were you brought into this fellowship with him? How did you end up calling on the name of Jesus when others didn't? Verse 2 tells us it was all a result of God's call. God calls all people everywhere through the proclamation of his word, through the reading of scripture, through preaching, through books. He calls people to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That goes to everyone and anyone. But not everyone believes and responds to that call. Because there's the outward call of the gospel, but there's also that inward secret call by the Holy Spirit, which makes us respond and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith arises when God works in us by that inward call, softening our hearts, making alive again our wills which were dead, our hearts which were hardened. And that inward call is what Paul means. When he says here, you were called to be saints. It was God's gracious, inward, secret call that made you respond to the outward call of the gospel. And from the very beginning, that means it was God's grace at work in you. The only reason you believe that you're here right now is because of God's grace. His working, his gracious working in your life. It was like Jesus standing before the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus is dead. He's not just incapacitated, he is dead. And Jesus calls out, Lazarus, come out. And through his words, effectually, Lazarus is made alive. What is dead is brought back to life. And in the same way, God has called us who were spiritually dead. And his call has made us come alive, that we willingly come to believe in Jesus Christ. But Paul adds, you were called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. He's saying, you're not the only ones who have been called in this way. The church is much bigger than Corinth. And of course, the church is much bigger than us, than Indiana, than the United States of America. There are believers who call on the name of our same Lord in Germany, in China, in Zimbabwe, in Russia, in New Zealand. Whether in third world poverty or under communist oppression or in big city abundance from different cultures and tongues, God's church lives on. He has his people everywhere. And it helps us to see that bigger picture because it keeps us on the one hand from pride. Have you ever been tempted to spiritual pride? Look at all the things I do for the church. Look at all the ways in which I serve this community. When you feel spiritual pride, you need to remember that God has plenty more people around the world and even in this country that he can use. He doesn't need you doesn't need me. 
His plan doesn't depend upon you. So it's an antidote for spiritual pride, but also, on the other hand, an antidote for discouragement. In the midst of our hostile culture, have you ever felt discouraged that the church is dwindling in its influence? It seems to be losing its strength in the culture, in this world. Is the church even working? Are we doing anything? When you feel that, remember, you are not alone. The worldwide universal church of Lord Jesus Christ continues to spread around the world. There is no need to be discouraged spiritually or proud. The only reason you're a Christian and part of this worldwide universal church of Christ is because of God's grace. Which leads us to our second point, which is God's gracious enriching. God's gracious enriching. In, Paul, in verse 4, Paul gives thanks for the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. He gives, gives thanks for that grace. And this is the grace of God's sanctifying calling, making us his own. But Paul also means grace here in a more specific sense in the sense of the gifts that he has given to the church, spiritual gifts by his gracious enriching. He mentions two of them in particular. If you look with me in the middle of verse 5, he mentions in all speech and all knowledge. These are spiritual gifts that were much needed in the early church. They have now passed away with the completion of the written word. But in those times, the gift of speech referred to speaking in tongues, that is, other languages that you have not learned. The gift of knowledge has to do with special prophetic knowledge from God, a word directly from God himself. And Paul does a shocking thing here because he gives thanks for the very gifts that were causing problems in the church in the first place. He doesn't avoid the topic. He tackles it head on. They were abusing these gifts, saying, I'm more spiritual. Look at me. They were boasting about these gifts. And so Paul eliminates the ground for boasting by pointing to God as the source of all these gifts. In the words of 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Their gifts were received gifts. They were part of God's undeserved enriching grace to them. Let's just think about what is a gift? Just think of a birthday gift or a gift for your wife, your loved one. A gift is not something that is owed. If it was owed, it would be more like payment, wouldn't it? Here, here are your flowers. is payment. But a gift, a handful of flowers, a nice book, a ring, a nice watch, these things are freely given You could say it's a token of grace. 
In fact, in the original language, the word gift, charisma, that's where we get charismatic, gift is closely connected to the word for grace, charis. Gift and grace are tied together. The Corinthians had forgotten that their special abilities of speech and knowledge were gifts given to them out of God's grace, that these were not their own. Nor should we forget that same fact, that our gifts are not our own. And by gifts, I don't just mean preaching from the front, evangelism, full-time ministry. There are also gifts like the ones we see in Romans 12, gifts of hospitality, gifts of encouragement, of service, of teaching, of giving. These are all things that God has enabled you to do in the life of the church. They are gifts that have come to you in and through Christ for the sake of his body. Therefore, remember that your gifts do not come from yourselves. They are received gifts. There's no room for boasting. There's no room for comparing your gifts negatively to others. Why can't she do this or serve in this way? Why is he not able to do what he does? Instead, give thanks to God for your own gifts and for the gifts of others. In the church, recognizing that these are gifts from God himself. It's his gracious enriching for the church as he equips his people as they move on toward the finish line. And Paul reminds us of that finish line in verse 7 when he says, you were enriched in this way so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's speaking about Jesus' return When he comes, he will be revealed in splendor and in glory. And at last, he will take his people to be with himself. That is what we eagerly wait for. But will we make it to the end? Will we be strong enough to make it to that finish line when Jesus is revealed? What if we don't make it? What if we lose strength? What if we fall away? What does verse 8 tell us? It says, He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this leads us to our last point, God's faithful keeping. God's faithful keeping. You know, we talk about the importance of finishing what we've started. We talk about that so often because... We often start projects, or young children start meals, but we never get around to finishing them. Well, what Paul is telling us here is that God certainly finishes what he started. And what has he started? He has started creating for himself a new humanity. The church a gathering of saints who are renewed and sanctified in Christ Jesus, his Son. In the beginning, he has called you by his grace. He has made you alive. He has brought you into fellowship with his Son. He has equipped his church with various gifts 
of the Spirit, and now He assures you, He will sustain you to the end. He will bring you to the finish line. Listen to the words of Isaiah 46. Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel. You whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried since you were born, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. Our God is faithful. And because he is faithful, he will keep you faithful to himself. So that on the last day, when you stand before Jesus, you will stand guiltless and blameless before him. You will make it to the end. There's no doubt about it in the scriptures. You'll make it to the end because you are his. And he will keep you strong. Now, that doesn't mean that you can then be passive along the way. Most of you would have seen or heard of tandem bicycles. Tandem bicycles. It's one bike, but it has two seats and two sets of pedals. You know what I'm talking about. One person goes in the front, another person goes in the back. And if one of the two begin pedaling strong enough, then the other's pedals will automatically start turning. You almost have to pedal together in sync. Now, loosely speaking, that is a picture of God's faithful keeping of us. Here's what I mean. It's not correct to say that God carries us to the end while we sit in the back relaxing without a care in the world about our faith, about God about his calling. We just sit in the back relaxing while God carries us along. Wrong. Nor do we pedal ourselves to the end through our self-effort. Pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. Our own good works. Because now that Jesus has saved me, he leaves me to myself, to my own efforts to get there to the end. Wrong. Rather, the picture is this. God, in his faithfulness, is the one propelling you forward. He's the one doing the main pedaling by his grace, and yet you still do the pedaling yourself. He keeps you persevering. In a mysterious way, God works in you so that you keep working. He gives you the strength so that you keep persevering in the faith. He keeps you believing. That's the mystery. Yet it's not you, but it's his grace working in you. Paul will say later on in chapter 15, these words, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I, I, worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that is with me. That is with me. Do you see that tension there? It is I. 
I'm the one persevering to the end. I'm believing in Jesus till the end, yet not I, but the grace of God working in me. It's God's grace that moves us to press on and to persevere till the end. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, The one who perseveres to the end will be saved. And our comfort is this, brothers and sisters, that we are not left to ourselves to make it to the end. Our faithful God will keep us strong so that we persevere. It's all of grace. From start to finish, from top to bottom, it's all of grace. By His grace, He will keep us believing just as He has kept you believing thus far. The God who who called you in the beginning is the same God who will keep you believing to the end. The God who sanctified you on the first day is the same God who will make you blameless on the last day. He will keep us faithful because he is faithful to the end. Amen. Shall we pray together? Faithful God and Father in heaven, since you have made us your people by your gracious call, Since this is a work that you yourself have begun, we boldly ask that you would keep us to the end and complete your work of salvation in us. Would you help us to persevere by the strength that you give to us? Work in us by your grace until we arrive at that finish line to be face to face with Christ our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.